We're in Exodus chapter 27, if you'd please open your Bibles there, if you want to follow along, navigate on your phone or your tablet. Exodus 27, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19, and then we're going to pop over to chapter 30 for a few verses there. The topic this morning, Moses describes the fence that creates the enclosure called the Court of the Tabernacle. The title of our message, The Chosen People's Court. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning, as always, we want to further our knowledge of what it was like to be uh, among the children of Israel during the Exodus when you were so excited to share with them the plans for the earthly tabernacle. But Lord, since today we are the temple of your Holy Spirit, individually and collectively, we need you to bring us up to date on these things uh, and enable us to see Jesus in this text so that we'll be encouraged in our most holy faith to go out sharing him with uh, non-believers and encouraging believers as well. Do those things and more, more than we could ever ask or think. We ask it in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Keith Moon, late drummer for The Who, made a sarcastic remark when he heard Jimmy Page had formed a band after the demise of the Yardbirds. Moon said that it would sink like a lead balloon. Inspired by Moon, Page and company dropped the A in lead in order to avoid confusion with the pronunciation, and they switched balloon for Zeppelin, probably because it just is cooler, hence the name Led Zeppelin. It was the bad guy who named the heroes in the recent Marvel Studios film when Ronan the Accuser sarcastically said, Behold your guardians of the galaxy. And the name stuck, and now you have a three-film franchise going. Do you realize that the first Christians did not name themselves but were named by others. We're told in the New Testament book of Acts, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Renowned Greek scholar Kenneth Weiss says that the name was given to them by the non-believing citizens of Antioch to ridicule believers for refusing to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Oh, they won't acknowledge Caesar. They're Christians. They're Christ-like. Nothing wrong with that term, regardless its source. Christ-like is a good thing to be. However, the word Christian only occurs three times in the New Testament. It's used twice by non-believers and once by the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Paul never used it. He preferred another expression that occurs 164 times in his inspired writing. It's the expression in Christ, sometimes in the Lord or in him, but the idea is that we are in Christ. I find it an awkward expression. It almost sounds mystical, although I know it's not. I think a Jew hearing Paul or reading him would not find it awkward at all. They were used to being in the court of the tabernacle and later the temple. Since the tabernacle was intended to picture the person and work of Jesus, just maybe it perfectly illustrates the idea of what it means to be in Christ. And so we're going to take that approach this morning. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the court of the tabernacle illustrates what it means to be in Christ And number two, the altar and the laver illustrate how you get to be in Christ. Now, we're going to look at the court of the tabernacle and then look at these two articles of furniture that were in the court. Uh, It makes for a more logical order for us, so that's why we're going to jump around just a little bit. And so, first, we're going to be in chapter 27, verse 9. And so, uh, head over there. If you read or listen to a lot of contemporary Christian teachers, you've probably noticed that it's considered cool to refer to believers not as Christians, 
but as Christ followers. That's the really hip uh, notation now if you're, you know, uh, teaching or if you're going to, you know you're going to a hip church if, if you're a Christ follower. I guess I get it. After all, Jesus did say, follow me. If that's your argument, however, it'd seem more biblical to call believers follow meers. <laughs> but that, is, is that cool? That's probably not going to catch on, is it? Follow meers. Uh, and so Christ followers. In Christ is perhaps the most biblical name for us. It'll never catch on, but it's solid. If people come up, you should be able to say to people, hey, I am in Christ. And it has a huge, as I hope we'll see, meaning. Uh, here are some prominent examples from the Apostle Paul's 164 uses. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, uh, creation. rather. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Colossians 3.3, 3, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So he doesn't say to all the Christians or all the Christ followers or all the follow meers. He says, you are in Christ. What does that mean? Well, I'm sure there are many good definitions, but there's perhaps no better illustration than the Old Testament court of the tabernacle. Now, you know, we're in this section of Exodus where God was giving Moses the plans for the earthly tabernacle. We've seen that the tabernacle was a 15-foot by 45-foot tent, 15 feet high. It was entered through a veil, and in the first chamber called the holy place, it was 15 feet by 30 feet, it was furnished with the table of showbread, the menorah, and the altar of incense. Through a second veil was the holy of holies. It was 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. In it was the Ark of the Covenant that would contain the tablets of the Ten Commandments, it was covered by a lid called the mercy seat. God manifested his presence behind that second veil in the Holy of Holies above the Ark of the Covenant. The Jewish priests daily entered the holy place to perform various functions. Uh, they would keep the uh, lights burning. They would uh, mess with the bread. There was uh, uh, you know, the incense to burn and uh, that kind of stuff. Daily they were in there. And then the high priest entered the Holy of Holies annually on the Day of Atonement to make sacrifice for the nation. This relatively small tabernacle was surrounded by a structure of linen fence. It was a fence that was draped with linen, forming within it the court of the tabernacle. It's called a court, but you and I think of it as a courtyard created by a fence surrounding the tabernacle. So let's read its description in chapter 29, 27, verse 9. You shall also make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side, there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side. And its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. The uh, hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. And along with the width of the cord on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The width of the cord on the east side shall be 50 cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. For the gate of the court there shall be a screen, 20 cubits long, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. All the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver. 
Their hook shall be of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout, and the heights uh, 5 cubits, made of fine woven linen and its sockets of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service, all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. And so the tabernacle was surrounded by a fence of curtains. Imagine, this is a crude illustration, but imagine you put up your framework, how you would normally put up a fence here, and then you covered it with fine linen, and that was the material instead of slats or boards or chain link. And so this was fine linen fence, about eight feet high and 150 feet long on the north and the south sides, 75 feet long on the west, only 45 feet on the east because there was a 30-foot gate. Again, the curtains were woven from fine linen and suspended from pillars that were staked to the ground. It was an enclosure of white linen with only one entrance within which you could approach and worship the one true God in his earthly tabernacle. And so let's talk about the curtains themselves because you've got to be struck by the fact that this is an unusual material to use for fencing. I would guess that probably none of you who have put up a fence recently asked for linen uh, or any kind of fabric like that. Uh, you want something that seems a little bit stronger and more durable. Fine white linen in the Bible is often an illustration of the righteousness of God that is a free gift to the sinner who trusts Jesus for salvation. To help us understand our need for salvation, God describes us in terms of our clothing. It's as if you entered a spiritual dimension and God says, if, if you were to see yourself spiritually the way I see you in your natural state, you would be dressed in filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Why is that a problem? Well, think of it this way. Heaven has a dress code, and folks in filthy rags can't get in. You know, you go to the restaurant, and it says no shirt, no shoes, no service. Uh, heaven has a dress code, and no one qualifies to get into heaven in their natural state. You could be the worst sinner on the face of the earth, you could be the person who's done the greatest amount of good works ever in the history of mankind, but when you get to thinking about standing before God, God says, in my infinite holiness and purity and righteousness, you are standing there in filthy rags because you were born in trespasses and sins and you've committed sins in your life and you go on committing sin. And so... Uh, we need a new spiritual wardrobe. Specifically, we need what's called a robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. So this is our illustration. If salvation could be illustrated as a garment, here it is. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So Isaiah says we need this garment of salvation. He says it's a robe of righteousness, and then he immediately compares it to a wedding garment. We need to be decked out like a bride on her wedding day. We get a glimpse at the bride in the last book of the Bible. In the Revelation, at the second coming of Jesus, believers of the church age, like you and I, whether we are, you know, die before the coming of Christ or uh, live to the rapture, at his second coming, we're coming back with him and this is how we're described in Revelation 19. Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, 
clean and bright. And so this fine linen robe, this garment that we need to enter heaven, is granted to us. It's a gift. It can't be earned or deserved. It's available to everyone, but like any gift, it has to be received. To illustrate that it's a free gift you must receive, Jesus told a story about a Jewish wedding. The part we're interested in involves a guest who did not have the proper wedding garment. This is from Matthew 22. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Not too many wedding crashers in that society. In that culture, the wedding garment was provided for you. It wasn't that this guest could not afford the proper clothing or that they ran out at the door and he came in anyway. No, he refused to receive it, and in his regular clothing, he was not fit to celebrate the wedding feast. And so here's what we're learning about fine linen. You're dressed in filthy rags. God has invited you to the wedding of his son to eternal life, and he has provided a fine linen robe for you. You can either reject it and be cast into outer darkness, or you can receive it and celebrate for eternity in heaven as if it were one long wedding feast. In the court of the tabernacle, you were surrounded by fine white linen. It wasn't a robe per se, but it symbolized the spiritual robing that protected the entire nation. And so we're talking about, in the New Testament, an individual robe from that point of view. But how would you picture robing the entire nation of millions of people? Well, because they all come into that court of the tabernacle, and so you see them in the righteousness of God, uh, protected by it, saved by it. When you were in the court of the tabernacle, you were surrounded by that, and he saw you in a place he had graciously provided for your salvation. And since the tabernacle and its courtyard all prefigured Jesus, we learn that in the book of Hebrews, being in the court of the tabernacle was like being in Jesus. And so in a sense, what I'm saying is that when God sees you, if you're a believer, he sees Jesus. And that's at least part of what it means to be in Christ. He, he no longer sees you wearing filthy rags. He sees you wearing the robe of righteousness given to you by Christ. You are in him. Although it was a fence made of fabric, it was a stronghold, a spiritual stronghold. That fabric representing God's righteousness being provided as a gift for salvation, stronger than adamantium, stronger than vibranium, no power, no principality, no ruler of the darkness of this world could touch you. The Jews, as they were marching through the wilderness, uh, there was a time when they, were try they, they tried to get Balaam to curse them, and he just couldn't do it. He kept blessing them, this weird prophet. And finally, he said, look, as long as they are obeying their God, they are invincible. Nothing can touch them. No army can assail. You'd think a, you'd think a camp that you know, has linen curtains would be pretty assailable, but they were absolutely indestructible unless, Balaam said, you can get them to sin against God and then he will discipline them for you. And that's exactly, sadly, what happened. And so this, this fence of righteousness, as it were, depicting uh, the solid position that the Israelis had 
as they walked with God. And so too with us, once you've been declared righteous by God, you are kept by his power until the day of your final salvation. The linen fence is not the only thing described in verses about the court of the tabernacle. There was also an entrance, and there were two things that were especially notable about it. First thing we note is that it was an exclusive entrance. There were not any other ways in. We might therefore say there are not many ways to God, but only one way to God. Who remembers the one-way craze in the 70s? Were you a part of that? Bumper stickers, everybody, you'd have a finger stick up like this and say, one way. You'd pull up to people at the stoplight and go, hey, whoa. That was replaced by honk if you love Jesus, which didn't go over quite as well. Honk, honk. (laughs) Found out a lot of Christians had road rage. And so finally that moved into some other campaigns. But anyway, I remember that. It was the what would Jesus do of its time. The one way into the court of the tabernacle is, of course, telling us that Jesus is the exclusive means of salvation. There's power in his name and in no other name. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to salvation except through him. Now, you know, it really bothers people that Jesus is the only way to God. They think there should be multiple ways. But what they really mean is they want to be able to work their way to heaven. They want to contribute their good works to get there. And the only person that would say something like that is a person who doesn't understand sin at all. Many of you had the experience when you came to Christ, you had a moment where God revealed to you what a terrible, dark, black-hearted, condemned sinner you really were. That no matter, and you knew that no matter how many good works you could perform, you were already lost and on your way to hell because you were, you were just black from birth. Black with sin, deserving of judgment. And so you would never say, okay, I see that, and so let me go out and help the poor, work with the homeless, I do this or do that. None of that can help you. You're gonna be lost. But then God steps in and he says, don't worry, you don't need to do any work at all. I know that you can't do any work, but I can do the work, and I have done the work, I've died on the cross, and your work is to simply believe me. It's all free. Wouldn't you rather have salvation as a free gift than something you had to work your entire life to earn, even if it was possible to earn it? And so how can people object to what is free? It's because they don't want to admit that they're sinners in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ, that his blood cleanses them and covers them. If you're not a Christian this morning, you can't work your way to heaven. You can't get there by deeds. Even one sin is enough to keep you from heaven. But the Lord is here offering you salvation as a free gift. He can declare you righteous. And just like that, in a Thanos kind of moment, no, never mind, inside joke with the Marvel fans, just like that, instead of being dressed in filthy rags, you have the robe of righteousness. You're declared righteous by God. Jesus is the exclusive means of grace, God's free gift. Everything else is a religion of works, and we don't want that. Second thing we note is that the gate was inviting, and it was pretty big. Fence was white linen. The gate was multicolored. There was no mistaking it. And it was 30 feet wide. You could literally drive a truck through it. It wasn't like the queue for the Peter Pan ride at Disneyland. Peter Pan ride, one of the great dark rides of all time. You're up there in the pirate ship looking down. It's fantastic, even as an adult. But they haven't really ever modernized it too much, and the queue is like six inches wide, it seems, you know? People are like trying to get through those little barns. You go, you know, that little maze. Definitely 
uh, prejudice against heavier people. I mean, I, I see people squeezing through there, and I think, man, you're going to lose your legs by the time you get to the ride. I, there's no circulation. And so this is a wide gate, 30 feet. There, there's no indication that it's hard to get in to the tabernacle. A Christian is a person who has been granted a fine linen garment of salvation. At the cross, Jesus took your filthy rags upon himself, and he gave you that robe. You're dressed for heaven and that is how God now sees you in Christ. And so what a great thing to say, hey, I'm in Christ. It encompasses all that doctrine that you've been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that you exchanged your filthy garments for his righteous robe. Now, the altar and the laver, or the laver, I go back and forth with that, they illustrate how you get to be in Christ. You've heard it said that while salvation in Jesus is free, it's costly, cost Jesus his life, exchanged on the cross for ours, as I've said. That exchange is represented in the court of the tabernacle by the sacrifices that took place at the altar. So we're in chapter 27. Let's look at verse 1. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. And you shall also make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles that shall be put in the rings and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. And you shall make it hollow with boards as it was shown you on the mountain, so they shall make it. When you entered through the wide gate to the court of the tabernacle, you brought with you an animal to sacrifice. The common animals were a bull or a goat or a sheep or, if you were extremely poor, a dove. You'd approach the altar. There'd be a priest standing by it to assist you. He would inspect your animal for blemishes and disabilities. It had to be a valuable sacrifice, something that uh, was meaningful, not some animal that was just about ready to die, no three-legged bulls, you know, that kind of thing. So the priest would examine it, and if it passed examination, then you, not the priest, would slit the lamb's throat or the bull's throat and butcher it. Uh, Leviticus chapter 1, Leviticus follows Exodus, and it gives a lot of the rules and rituals for the furnishings that we're reading about. And it says this, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd and of the flock. If this offering is a burnt offering of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement or a covering uh, for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. And so the offerer is the one who uh, slit the throat of the animal and later butchered it if, if that was one of the regulations of that particular type of offering. And then the priests would deal with the blood. And all of this was to show blood was necessary in order for you to approach God. 
The righteousness surrounding them by the grace of God was made possible by the shedding of blood. God explained to Adam and Eve that their sin would bring death. And the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. They died spiritually because their relationship with God was hindered. They began to die physically, and they started to age and eventually died physically. And they would have died eternally, meaning being separated from God, had not God stepped in with a plan. God explained to Adam and Eve that their sin would bring death and that someone had to die for it. And if it wasn't them, it would have to be a suitable substitute. No mere human could be that substitute. So God began to explain that he must come in a body. He said he would be a person called the seed of the woman, that he would die in our place to once and for all pay for the penalty mankind owed. And from that moment forward, we see the history of redemption, how that God planned to come in human flesh, born of a woman, born of a virgin, as the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. In the meantime... He would accept the sacrifice of innocent animal substitutes in his place. You placed your hand on the sacrifice symbolizing that the innocent animal was taking upon it your sin temporarily until the coming of the Savior. Animal sacrifices were never intended to solve the sin problem, but they kept you focused on the fact that one day God was coming in human flesh as the final sacrifice that would solve sin and restore all things. Can you even imagine the amount of blood spilled over the centuries? Let me talk about one Passover feast. This is a passage from Josephus, and it says that at least a quarter of a million lambs were killed in the temple each year at the Passover. Immediately you say, that's impossible. Well, here's how one resource uh, put it. Assuming that the only requirement for ritually killing a lamb for Passover was to slice the lamb's throat with a ritually clean knife and collect a small amount of blood to be thrown on the high altar, then 144 priests overseeing the killing of six lambs a minute, 10 seconds per lamb, assuming the men were lined up in a moving line holding their lamb, would have taken five hours to kill a quarter of a million lambs. Assuming that the ritual killing started at 1 p.m., everything would have been finished by 6 p.m., well before sunset, So the number of lambs killed for Passover recorded by Josephus is within the realm of possibility. I'm not saying it was. Nobody has the number. They didn't keep a record of the number. But if it wasn't 250,000, it could have been 100,000, even 50,000. Think of over the centuries, not just at Passover and special festivals, but every day and all the Israelites bringing these sacrifices, the millions and millions of animals that were literally sacrificed on the altar. There was a constant flow of blood, yet all of it combined could never take away sin. It could only prefigure the preciousness of the blood that would be shed by the God-man when God came in a body that was prepared to die so that he could solve the sin problem. John the Baptist was tasked with introducing Jesus at the start of the Lord's ministry on earth Do you know how many names or titles there are for Jesus in the Bible? I found one list of a hundred, but I think there's a lot more than that. John settled on one, exclaiming to the crowd, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we get all excited about that because we know a lot about this symbolism already that I'm talking about. But if you didn't know anything about Jesus Christ and the Old Testament sacrificial system, 
And you said, hey, I'm going to introduce you to the greatest person in the history of the world, the one who will rule and reign forever and ever and ever, God be blessed. It is the Lamb of God. I don't know any sports team that has the Lamb as its, uh, you know, animal. Let's go out there and get those lambs. I mean, you know, usually you want to be some kind of a fierce, you know, kind of a thing. Tennessee Titans, you know, Oakland Raiders or Las Vegas Raiders or the L.A. Raiders or wherever the Raiders are ending up. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, you don't, you don't say, hey, out of the hundreds of names that would really, really, you know, identify this person, let's call him the Lamb of God. But a Jew, now that would make really an amazing impression on a Jew because they, familiar with constant animal sacrifices, would know that John is identifying the one promised in the Garden of Eden to be the final sacrifice and substitute. In the book whose very title indicates it's meant to reveal Jesus in the Revelation, over 30 names describe him in that book alone, but the one used most, some 28 times, is the Lamb. For example, Revelation 5.12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Your fine linen robe of righteousness was literally washed in the blood. You get to be in Christ by the shedding of his blood for the sins of the world. Now, there's one other piece of furniture in the court of the tabernacle. It's a wash basin called the laver or the laver. I can't figure out how I want to pronounce it, and so I keep going back and forth. Uh, Jump ahead to verse 17 of chapter 30. Chapter 30, verse 17. It's described by Moses. And again, we're taking all this a little out of order because we want to look at it logically. We're talking about the court of the tabernacle and the two pieces of furniture that are in it. And the laver is described, says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout all their generations. The tabernacle was a dirt floor, and lots and lots of blood all day. The priests, who went barefoot, by the way, got plenty dirty. Think about how often during the day they'd have to wash their hands and feet. And so they were surrounded by the righteousness of God, but even in that courtyard, serving the Lord, they picked up defilement and needed constant washing as a result. That sounds a great deal like something Jesus explained to his disciples at their final Passover on the night before he was crucified. You might remember what happened. None of the disciples would stoop to being the servant who washed the other disciples' feet before the meal. And then something dramatic and unexpected occurred. I'll pick up the story in John 13, 4. Jesus rose from supper and laid his garments aside and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He came to Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I'm doing you don't understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. 
Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Now, evangelical commentators almost universally agree that Jesus was explaining that when you get saved, it's like being bathed all over. It's a one-time event as God declares you righteous and clothes you for heaven with Christ's robe. But as we continue to live in this world, we tend to pick up defilement. And for that, we need a constant cleansing, which we get from Jesus as we let his word wash over us. Uh, the world is a place of defilement. Anytime you log on to the internet, you're, you're in a, 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 a morass of defilement. You don't have to sign up for anything. It comes to you. Uh, email, I'm not saying you shouldn't use the internet, but use it wisely. I mean, it, it's terrible. I don't know, you parents, I pray, I, I don't know what I'd even tell parents today. I just pray for you uh, when it comes to your kids having devices. It's incredible, the stuff that's out there. Uh, and it's, it's defilement that we need to deal with. And we can't become desensitized to it. We need to deal with it. And so you're, you're, you're a Christian. You're, you've, you've been given this robe of righteousness. You're unassailable in one sense. But then these defilements come in and we need to deal with them so that we can keep our relationship with God exactly where it needs to be. Here's how the Apostle Paul explained it in Ephesians 5. He's talking about marriage, and then all of a sudden he jumps into Christ and his love for the church. He says, Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, talking about the Bible, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And so what Paul is talking about there theologically is the doctrine of salvation where uh, it's in, we talk about it being in three phases. You get saved, uh, so positionally you're wearing this robe and you're, you're saved. Uh, the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you're declared righteous. But then there's a process of growing in the Lord, of, of growing in holiness and purity, growing closer to the Lord. That's called sanctification as we daily are being changed into the image of Christ. And then when you die or when we're raptured, we are finally going to be glorified. Uh, we will be fully saved in the sense that we won't have a body of flesh anymore, but a glorified body and mind that are incapable of sin. And, and so that's what we're talking about. You're saved, but as you walk through this world, you can pick up defilement, and we need the Bible in order to wash over us and keep us pure. I'll let William McDonald explain it. I think he does a good job in his Believer's Bible commentary. He says, positionally, the church is saved. Practically, she's being set apart day by day. She's going through a process of moral and spiritual preparation. The process is called sanctification. It's carried on by the washing of water by the word. In simple terms, this means that the lives of believers are cleansed as they hear the words of Christ and obey them. Just as the blood of Christ cleanses them once for all from the guilt and penalty of sin, so the word of God cleanses continually from the defilements and pollution of sin. And so that's what we're talking about with this laver or laver. It's representative of the daily cleansing that we need and deserve and, and desire, rather, as believers. And so whether you identify as a Christian or a Christ follower, maybe you'll start calling yourself a follow me -er. I think that'd be a great... Uh, you know, icebreaker, but obviously you don't. If you're saved, you're in Christ. I'll leave you with one more of the Apostle Paul's 164 in Christ statements. 
He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9, Jesus has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ before time began. Let's pray.